Hello and welcome to A View from the Perch, a podcast covering important financial topics from the perspective of two certified financial planners. Each week we give a brief market update, discuss current economic conditions, and provide education on a financial subject. Now here are your hosts, Bill Parrott and Spencer Nguyen. All right, Bill, new week, same question. How are the markets? What's the question? How are the markets? Oh, man. Uh, this week, they're not good. Uh, the S&P 500 is down 3%. Small caps are down 3.5%. International stocks doing the best. They're only down 1 and 3 quarters percent. And long bonds down 2.59%. So negative across the board. I think this is one of the... The worst weeks we've yeah. had in a while for uh, all four performance-wise. Yeah. Okay. And so the Fed announced they were pausing rate hikes yesterday uh, on Wednesday. However, the higher for longer has got people extremely nervous, or what's kind of the major thing of the downturn? The new term is hawkish pause. Okay. So uh, <laughs> they didn't raise rates. Uh, they said that they're probably going to raise rates one more time, mm. uh, but without any intentions of lowering them. So higher for longer. Rates are going to be elevated, um, which is forcing things higher, like dollar. Uh, the tenure is at the highest rate of the year. It's at mm. four, four, eight right now. And some people think it's going to go five, five and a quarter percent. Uh, the tenure is a major driver for economy, mortgages. So, well, you know, as mortgage rates go higher, um, uh, it's just going to slow down that front, which is interesting because real estate prices really haven't dropped, which there's a disconnect there. But uh, higher for longer and a hawkish pause market doesn't doesn't like that. Which is so interesting because people were, oh, 25 basis point increase last week when CPI and PPI came out hot. They're like, huh. And then... How comes and says higher for longer, and is it just triggering words, or do people really have this adverse reaction to that? I think a lot of people have built their models on the assumption that the Fed is going to start lowering rates in January. Mm. That 2024 rates are coming down, we're going back to normal in air quotes. Um, but really, rates right now are about where they've been historically. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. I, I didn't think it was as bad or as negative as others have said. Um, the economy is doing well. Mm-hmm. Unemployment's low. Wages are rising. Consumers are spending. So, that's going to keep the market and, well, the economy moving forward. Yeah. And so, don't really see rates coming down anytime soon. And that wouldn't be the end of the world with a rate yeah. stabilizing right here. So kind of why is sky falling? Is it September just being a horrible month or is it really just people I think reacting? I think people wanted him to say we're gonna start lowering rates. I, I really think they said, hey this is the peak. Mm. Expect lower rates sooner than later. But He's not going to say that. What gave anybody the thought that Powell would ever say that? Well, the models kind of are predicting that there's going to be lower rates. Yeah. But yeah. Do you, I mean, 
listening to Powell the past couple years, I can't imagine him ever being like, what everybody wants him to say, he's going to say. Oh, it seems I, like he always does the opposite. People are always surprised. I hear you. He, he really hasn't wavered or deviated no. from his message. But I think people, uh, as we get closer to the end of the year, they're like, oh, good. 2024 rates are coming down. Mm. Uh, they don't have to do anything. They can, they can hang out here for a long time. Yeah. And uh, which isn't bad. I mean, if they just stop rising, mm. um, you know, last year rates went up like 10,000% or yeah. some insane number. This year, uh, the 10 year uh, is up about five and a quarter percent, which is not a, a huge move. Mm. So our long term rates are up about yeah. five and a quarter percent. Yeah. Should not say. not at five and a quarter. Yeah. It's risen five and a quarter percent. Too many rates. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're like, well, what's what's the percent, and then what has it increased? Um. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. And, so kind of, we're just in a wait and see mode, and well, and and I, a lot of people are saying that this feels a lot like 1987. When no. So 1987. Uh, markets peaked in August, mm-hmm. started to come down, and then crashed in October. So October 19, 1987, yeah. uh, where the market fell 22%. So a lot of people say, hey, this is very similar mm-hmm. to 1987, which if you look at 1987, from January to August, the market was up 43%. It was soaring. And interest rates were near 10%. Oh, wow. So... People probably started taking profits, locking in 10% returns, 9% returns, and then it sold off. This year, rates aren't up that much, and the Dow is only up about 3%. Mm -hmm. So much different. Rates are much lower today. It's a different dynamic. I don't think it's like 1987 at all, Um, and we're certainly not predicting a crash. But a lot of people are starting to uh, say, hey, this feels a lot like 1987. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it hit, you know, the market has no memory yeah. and, and I don't, I don't think it is like 1987. So if you're hearing those things, those rumors, those stories, whatever, uh, we, we're not in that camp. Was the economy as robust as it it's is pretty, now in 1987? It, yeah, it was pretty robust. So it was, it was, uh, pretty strong. Um, so we were coming off a major recession, late seventies, early eighties. So from 82 to 87, that was one of the best time to be an investor. Market just went straight up. And uh, then the reckoning came in 87, which is interesting because 1987, the year, January to December, the market was up about two and a quarter percent. Yeah, that is so. interesting. And wait and see, wait and see, wait and see. It'll be nice when all this Fed talk, talk is done. Um, yeah, I just, I just am always perplexed that, People expect how to say something, and he does every time. <laughs> but we shall see. Yep, I hear you know. Here's he says, "Here's what's happening. Here's what I'm doing," and people are still surprised. Well, it is what it is. Okay, let's change uh, transition over to our empowering education, and I'm going to set the framework, and then we're going to dive into it because we're talking about the race to zero, zero being the fees for index funds or exchange traded funds. So. State Street slashed, um, this is what kind of brought up this topic, the fee on its most kind of cost-effective S&P 500 ETF to 0.02%, making about a quarter of SPY's S&P 500. And the big thing that they went 
and said is 20 years ago, the average fee was 1%. And now State Street is saying they can do a whole portfolio similar to that at 0.05%, which is using ETFs. And the big reason why we talk about it, because that doesn't seem huge, right? 1% compared to 0.05, you know, it, it is what it is. But a $1 million investment for 40 years at a 0.05% expense ratio compared to a 1% is 370000 difference just based on dollars. Fees. Yeah, dollars. Uh, just based on fees. Yep. So first things first, what are these fees for and why do we have them? Well, I'll, I'll give you one up on that. Fidelity has four funds right now with zero fees. So zero sugar, zero emissions, <laughs> zero, zero, zero. So the um, all funds have a fee, uh, except those four Fidelity funds, and it's an operating expense ratio. Mm -hmm. And that's for managing the funds, uh, filing the reports, paying the firm, whatever. Uh, that's how the firm gets, primarily, that's how they get paid is through operating expense ratios. So all funds have it, OER. You can check it on, on Yahoo Finance. Just plug in your fund symbol, and it will give you um, will give you that expense ratio. Now, that is independent of any commissions you might pay. It's independent of any fee you might pay your advisor. Mm. It's universal. So whether you buy it yourself or through an advisor, the operating expense ratio is, is a cost that everybody pays. Gotcha. And so with index funding or index funds, does it really matter which kind of major company you use if they're indexing a certain indice or, or kind of what, what goes into that? Uh, well, I, if you own an index fund with high fees, um, there are a plethora mm. of, uh, <laughs> of funds out there with lower fees. So there's no reason to have, like if you own an index fund and you're paying 1%, you're getting ripped off. Because mm. you could buy a Vanguard fund, you could buy this other fund, Fidelity fund, Schwab funds, at almost no cost. So you might as well just look at your expense ratios and say, hey, can we do this cheaper somewhere else? And the answer is usually yes. Yeah, because with index funding, you're just mirroring whatever in this indice you're, you're taking part of. So it's, it's, the index. it's the same positions, but you're just getting a little bit higher fee, which will cost you on the return end. Yeah. And I don't know the exact number, but there are hundreds of thousands of indices. Mm. So pick your poison. Absolutely. Yeah. So kind of how would you suggest somebody craft a, a very low fee-based portfolio? And is that something that's available, applicable, or is it something that you just want to look to do? Yeah. And some of our models, I think the average fee is like 0 0.11, 0.11, mm. super low. Uh, well, first and foremost, you should pick a fund based on your goals that's performing well, that's been around for a while, has a decent level of assets, and is managed by a reputable company. Okay. Uh, so that aside, then you look at the expense ratios. Are there funds that are doing it faster, better, cheaper than what you're in? And also, uh, there are a lot of ETFs that are coming to market right now. And so I would recommend if you are 
a do-it-yourself investor, make sure that ETF has at least a billion, with it be a billion in assets under management uh, for a lot of reasons. But if you have a, a an ETF with very few assets, um, you could get whipsawed a little bit uh, in those holdings. So just careful about that. So first, look at your goals, how that fund's going to help you, the management, the assets, and then look to the expense ratios. Because again, as you mentioned, there, there, there are so many funds out there that to pay a high fee makes no sense. Mm. So what would you say about those people that say, well, they have to be charging a fee for some reason. I don't want the cheapest product because in their minds, cheap yeah. equals inferior. So what would you say about that? Well, here's the secret. Um, most fund companies make their money off cash management. Hmm. So if there's an allocation to cash, they're likely making a lot of money on that cash holding. So for example, let's say you have a savings account at Chase Bank. They're paying you right now probably 0.1%. So you have your money at Chase Bank earning 0.1%. What does Chase do with that money? They buy treasuries with it. At five and a quarter percent. So they're making uh, a substantial markup on that cash holding with no risk. So most fund companies, investment firms, they make most of their money on the asset management side from cash management. So if there's idle cash in those funds, if there's idle cash in your account, that money is being reinvested by the firm somewhere else at a higher rate. That's an interesting point. So if we continue this race to zero, will we see higher cash allocations to make up for it? Or So how is Fidelity's zero funds? How are they making money? Do they have a large cash position or is it just? Well, they're probably, probably yet. Yeah. Well, I don't know about their specific allocation, uh, but my guess is they do have a decent size allocation to cash. And um, it's probably a little bit of a loss leader. That's what, yeah. Like, hey, take this. But there was a lawsuit several years ago. Um, Schwab got sued. They had a robo-advising program. And their allocation to cash was high, very high. And so people said, hey, there's a cash drag on the portfolio. We're not making as much money because the cash holdings, but they were taking that cash and reinvesting it at higher rates. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I, I don't think there was anything illegal about it. it. Just that was their allocation model. And then they were using that cash reinvested at higher rates. And that's where they're, they're making that spread. Hmm. So do you think in the future, if we continue to be compressed, that's going to be more of an issue or do you think people are going to catch on to that? So I guess the question I'm saying... People will know. They won't know. Is it better to have a high expense ratio and, and not have to worry about all this cash position? Or which do you think is better? Well, the yeah, the lower expense ratio is better because, mm -hmm. again, most people don't know what's happening behind the curtain, yeah, right? Yeah. They're not in there seeing how the sausage is made. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's one thing to look at. Like, if you have a growth fund and they have 20% in cash... Why? <laughs> yeah. You know, I would like get another fund, but that, that cash drag and the cash, but um, yeah, as rates go to zero, yeah. firms have to look for more ways, more creative ways to make money. Mm -hmm. So uh, as somebody said to me a long time ago about the industry, it's not the Catholic church. You know, they're, they're making money somewhere. Yeah. And, 
you know, look at their buildings. I mean, they're they're very robust. And uh, but those fees, the expense ratios, lower is better for the investor. But those firms are making that money somewhere else, whether it's through trading, cash management, or other products or services that they uh, move you into once you're inside the firm. Yeah, that's so interesting because you see the race to zero, all these funds, the Fidelity comes out, we have a 0% expense ratio fund, and everybody's, oh, this is great for the end consumer, but sometimes there's that underlying motivation that might not be the best for the actual consumer. Exactly. So you have to look at, again, the allocation of that fund, um, and again, they get you in the door and they say, yes, we'll put you in this fund, but take a look at this shiny mm -hmm. object over here. Uh, <laughs> this looks good on you. Uh, I think you should own it. I think you should buy it. Um, so just, just be aware that uh, those expense ratios are low and there might be other service or product. Now, like sometimes it's legit and there's no concerns and kudos to you, yeah. you know, knock yourself out. Yeah, sounds like a, a great use of a financial advisor if you don't have one. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's another thing. If you're working with an advisor or you have an account at a large brokerage firm or an insurance company and you own a basket of index funds and they're charging you 1%, 1.5% or 2% to manage your assets, you need to change firms because you could you – could, easily get that at a lower fee yeah. somewhere else like here. Exactly. But, uh, um, but if you, if, if all your advisor is doing is buying a basket of index funds and charging you 1%, then you, you need to look at a new firm, especially if they're not doing any financial planning. Yeah. Uh, then you definitely need to, to switch. But uh, so, so look at that fee that your firm is charging you on top of what, the expense ratios are being assessed in your in your funds because uh, that's another fee. Yeah, like, sounds yeah. like another podcast topic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll give you this low expense ratio fund, and we're going to charge you two percent. Mm, yeah. So, just yeah, being fee aware is, is very prudent because, like we mentioned, it can it can drastically affect your returns, and returns are just the word for the money coming to you. It yes, really is. more money in your pocket, yeah. and we do a lot of fee audits for people, and we say, hey. You have XYZ fund, you could do ABC fund. Mm -hmm. Same thing, lower cost. Um, we're recently, uh, are, we're helping somebody uh, potentially set up a Vanguard 403B because the costs are super low. Yeah. And so, yeah, be aware. Absolutely. Look, look, at, look at the expense ratios. Again, you can find them on Yahoo Finance, super easy. Uh, and if you're not sure, you know, we can certainly help you with that. Absolutely. I think a yeah, very productive conversation. I uh, appreciate the insight. Let's transition over to our intriguing issue. And you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? You go ahead. Okay. My big thing, this has been, uh, piqued my interest, is Disney shift. So Disney is yeah. now announcing that it nearly double its investment into their cruise and parks businesses to about $60 billion for the next 10 years. Yes. Which is interesting because... Before, it seemed Disney was focusing on the cable and the television, and especially to subsidize Disney Plus, which was kind of their big un unveiling of it. But for the past three quarters, the income, the operation income from the parks division has outperformed the TV division by about a hundred, couple hundred million. 
And so it's just this idea is, is Disney going back to, hey, let's focus on, I'm going to Disney World, I'm going to these Disney cruises, focusing on the experiences rather than kind of the streaming and TV that we've seen them be hyper-focused on for the past five, ten years. And especially with their thinking about a deal with ABC, with Spectrum, and kind of it seems as if the headache might not be worth it for Disney to be the headline for these cable industries anymore. Well, uh, that's a great topic. And uh, when I was going to Disneyland in the 70s, there was no cable and there was no (laughs) internet. And the theme parks drove everything else out, or drove everything else for that company. You went to the theme park, and then you'd walk out of there with a bag full of uh, chotskis that you paid a lot of money for. But that's, so, so cable TV is a commodity, right? And there's a war, lower, you know, talking about low fees, yeah, exactly. zero. but Paramount, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, they don't have theme parks. And Disney knows that. So if you take a family of four to Disney, you're going to spend thousands of dollars. You're not spending eight ninety five or whatever they charge. Oh, yeah. You're spending thousands of dollars on tickets, on food, airfare, hotels. And Disney knows that. Once they get you in that park, you're captive. You're paying $60 for a burger. You're paying $100 for a drink or whatever. Yeah. So it makes sense to me. Well, especially with the experiences they're able to create. I, I know that Star yeah. Wars land is a huge uh, attraction for a lot of tourists. And it's just this, this idea, yeah, we want to cut the cable. People aren't really worried about... Like you said, if it's cable or if it's streaming, you want the lowest price regardless. Yeah. However, when you go to Disneyland or Disney World, I'm in Epcot. I don't care if the drinks are $15. I'm in Epcot, right? You're on vacation. So, you're having a great time. But also, uh, what happens to that family of four? So they, they go to Disneyland. Hmm. Their kids, Johnny and Susie, are 8 and 10. Where are Johnny and Susie taking their kids when they have them? To right. Disneyland. Or Disney World. Or Disney World. <laughs> so um, the California bias. <laughs> yeah. Left Coast bias. Uh, and that was their route, the family, because they knew that it was generational. Mm-hmm. It's not uncommon to see grandparents, parents, and, and children at the theme park. That's said it's been several years now, but uh, we went to Disneyland with my parents, my sister's family, her kids, my kid. You, you had three generations yeah. there, and my bet is my nieces and my daughter will take their kids to Disneyland at yeah. some point. And I think the parks will only get better with this kind of more focus on them, and I agree. I just I think the streaming model is getting a lot of pressure from a lot of companies. Like yeah. HBO Max is struggling, Paramount Plus is struggling, neither one of them were profitable last year. Let's see if they're profitable this year. But yeah, it just seems, hey, go back to your bread and butter. Do you think, and maybe they do it right, but do you think they say, hey, Spencer, bring your family to Disney, and in addition to your ticket cost, we'll give you a year's free of Disney Plus. Yeah, I won't be surprised if they did that. I mean, that's a rounding error for them. Yeah, you come to our park, we'll give you, you know, 
pick a term. It might even be like, we'll give you a free month, but we'll set up an auto renew pay, and then you forget about it, and now you're paying Disney there, for There you go. I mean, Here. that would cost them hardly anything. 20 bucks a ticket, yeah. Yeah. Nothing. So uh, I could see that. And uh, what was cool, when I first got married, my in-laws worked at Disney. Oh, nice. So I got to go for free. I haven't, I can't remember the last time I paid to go to Disneyland. It's a good life. That's a good life. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. Well, what's your intriguing issue? Well, let's go. We had talked, I think, speculating that Disney was going to do something in Texas. And I still think it's going to happen. Disney Ranch or whatever. I I think it's going to be Disney Ranch. I really, really do. And and with this $60 billion, that's a lot of money. Yeah. You can build a couple parks up. So we'll see. And Texas is not short on land, that's for sure. Not short on land and not short on being friendly to businesses. And uh, even though it's hotter than the other side of the sun here in summer... So is Florida. True. So, and we have less humidity. That's immunity. Maybe a Disney ranch slash water park. I don't know about Disney's water parks. You know, you never know. Like it. Like it. Well, uh, we sort of already talked about already with the Fed. Mm. You know, they left uh, rates alone. They are expected to raise rates one more time. Uh, but I, I think people have to get used to higher rates for longer. Uh, we're definitely not going to zero. That was an anomaly, a lifetime, probably a generational event that uh, I don't think we'll ever see again in, in our generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so investors have to get used to these rates. Now that's, I think, a positive for bondholders. I agree. Because now you get cash flow. So for the first time in seven years, ten years, you know, we could offer a rate people that's competitive that's competitive and you know in march of 20 rates were zero Who, who's going to buy a bond paying 0.1 percent no one uh but now they're a five and a quarter and we can find bond, bonds at higher rates depending on someone's risk tolerance and the funds that we're recommending now are offering a decent rate and a decent coupon so uh, i think rates for longer is not going to be that bad for investors because they'll on the equity side you'll be able to calculate it in your models yeah okay rates five percent what does that mean but on the bond side the fixed income side you get paid to wait you get paid for income which we haven't had in a long time and if you are a saver mm-hmm. you're super conservative you can keep your money in treasuries or money market and get over five percent so um i think the fed Again, the message yesterday wasn't all that bad to me. Mm-hmm. And if we get one more rate hike, that's okay. Yeah. And if we stay here, I think that's okay too. Yeah, and I, I think it only bodes well for diversification. When we have yeah. stable rates and a competitive rate, which is what we preach. And yeah, I agree. I, I think, and it's crazy because every single time my generation complains about mortgage rates being in the sevens when they were in the twos. My parents' generation says, well, when we bought our first houses, it went 20%. So yeah. it's, it's not. And it was snowing. Yeah, exactly. We had to walk uphill both ways to yeah. get to school. So, I, yeah, I agree. I think the stabilization is really the key for it. And as soon as, like you said, markets hate uncertainty. So as soon as the certain equations they're able to map out, I think it'll be smooth sailing. Well, think about this. So we, we have models. And, and let's look at our, our 50-50 model. Half stock, half bonds. So two, three years ago, that half of the portfolio was generating, I don't know, maybe a half to 1% in income. So now it's generating 5% or so, 4 or 5%. So you're able to pick up 20 
to $25,000 in cash flow that's being reinvested every year. So over 10 years, you're picking up a quarter of a million dollars in cash flow, not anything on the growth side. That hasn't happened in like seven to 10 years. So you're getting an extra, well, a lot more money, just a chunk of change. On you know a million dollar portfolio, half of it's in bonds now, earning twenty five grand a year. Absolutely agree. Well, or twenty grand a yeah. year, whatever that number. Is. <laughs> whatever the math works out to be. Well, always appreciate your insight and expertise, Bill. What do you want to leave our listeners with? It's now time to buy bonds. Mm. You gotta load up. I think fixed income is going to be uh, the place to be for a while. Love it. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website at parrotwealth.com. That's parrot with two T's, where you can learn everything we have to offer here at Parrot Wealth Management. That's our view from the perch. See you next week.